This morning, I want to start by talking about a, a conflict that took place in Northern Ireland back in the second half of the last century. Uh, Northern Ireland's part of the United Kingdom. And during that period of time, we call it the Northern Ireland conflict. But during that period of time, they kind of had this low-level civil war going on, a lot of terrorism. It was between the Protestants, Irish Protestants, who wanted to stay part of United Kingdom and then the uh, Catholic separatists who wanted to pull out of the United Kingdom and join the country of Ireland to create a greater Ireland. So there was, it was a civil war, and about 3,500 people died during that period of 40 years or so. We call it the Northern Ireland conflict, but they call it the Troubles. They just speak of the Troubles that took place during that time. And as you can imagine, many people are still alive that experienced that. And it was a time of great loss and great pain and great insecurity. If some of you have seen the movie Belfast recently, it pictures that conflict. It's a really good movie, but it pictures it all through the eyes and experiences of a, a young boy that was there. And so it was resolved finally in 1998. But the troubles, that's really what I'm picking up here because I think that's kind of a, a good phrase, troubles. In this case, uh, troubles for a whole country. And I think we experience the troubles here to a degree in our country. Our nation is in a period of trouble. And we as individuals and families can all look back on the troubles in our lives and those times when maybe something in the health department and finances and career relationships hit you all at once. And troubles can sometimes come in bunches and we can feel attacked by all Sides and, and you can probably think back in your life to different periods of, yeah, that was a period of the troubles for us or for me. And so to address these troubles, not just for the church as a whole, but troubles for us as individuals, I want to talk today uh, about how we are called to share in the sufferings of Christ. Share in the sufferings or the troubles that Jesus experienced when he was here, and even the troubles of the cross. And there are at least six different passages in the New Testament that speak about this, that describe the sense in which we participate in the sufferings of Jesus. We fellowship in his suffering. I put, want to put up the slide that just shows all six of these passages. Don't worry, I don't, we're not going to cover all six of these. I've chosen two of them. But... Uh, there's a passage in Romans 8 where it says, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 2 Corinthians 4, it's an odd passage. We are always, Paul talked about, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. It'd be fun to, or it'd be good to get into that sometime. 1 Peter 4, rejoice, Peter says, in the degree that you have shared in the sufferings of Christ. What does that mean? Participate in the sufferings of a man who lived on earth 2,000 years ago. Colossians 1, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And then the two that we're going to look at today, Philippians 3, where Paul, the phrase there is that I may share his sufferings or fellowship with his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And 2 Corinthians 1, where it speaks of how we're, uh, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. So we start in Philippians 3. So if you could open up to there, uh, Philippians chapter 3, jumping in the middle of the chapter in verse 7. <clears throat> and I'll read this section. 
But here, as we read this, and as you, you could kind of be looking for this, we will see that we share Christ's troubles in order to know him better, in order to grow in our relationship with him. Suffering generates intimacy with God. And so Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He keeps talking about knowing Christ, gaining Christ. And be, ha be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share or fellowship with his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul starts there kind of going through an autobiographical sequence, talking about his own life and how this developed for him. And so in verse 7, he, he first starts by looking back in the past tense, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And so he seems to be saying there was a specific decision sometime back in his life, probably his conversion, but somewhere around his conversion, that he saw all those past advantages as he had as, as loss, as not helping him in gaining a relationship with Christ as he had always depended on. And then he comes up into the present in verse 8 and says, Indeed, I count now everything is lost because of their surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. That's still my perspective now, not just back then. So I'm still looking at life in that same way. And then even further, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This loss for him was not just in theory, not just I'm willing to lose those things, but I have lost them. I have actually suffered the loss of all those things. It was his actual experience, his, his past power, his prestige, any material prosperity he had, uh, uh, the people knowing about him because he was a, Pharisee or health, he lost that record of achievements he had, his education, freedom, all those kinds, right to marry, to have a family. He let go of all those things ultimately in order to participate in Christ's sufferings to know him better, to gain Christ, gain Christ. So he says all these things he considers rubbish. Now I just have a feeling this church has gone through the book of Philippians a bunch of times but reviewing certain words, that word rubbish, it's a really coarse, ugly word. Only time it's used in Scripture in the New Testament, skubala. And it's the idea of rubbish or refuse or dirt, dung. It's used of human, outside of the Bible, of human excrement, of rotten food, of rotting corpses. It's used of all kinds of worthless things. It has this idea of worthlessness or uselessness or repulsiveness. And it connotes nastiness, decay, things that are rotting. That's the, the word. It's the kind of word that we could, could have been translated with a four-letter word. It's a, it would be appropriate here because that's how coarse the word is. And it's something that we find, it's, it's, rubbish is this kind of thing that if we found it in our hand, we'd get rid of it as quick as we could. 
But he's saying that's his attitude. If any of those things are obstacles to knowing Jesus better, he wants to let go of them just let go of them just as quick as he can because they're rotten, they're decayed, they're worthless. Any obstacle, any obstacle to knowing Christ better, to to know Jesus better, to develop a closeness with Him, we let go of. Paul's using himself as an example here. This willingness to consider it all to be worthless is part of our suffering. It's part of our suffering to let go of that. And it's the way in which we imitate Jesus. And in this case, we even imitate Paul and his attitude toward life. This willingness to consider all to be worthless. And we can be asked to let go of some pretty precious things, some pretty nice things, some pleasant things at times if they become obstacles to our participating with Jesus and becoming like him and knowing him better. And so he continues in, uh, well, let's jump down to verse 9. He talks about still this same attitude that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. And that word share, some of the other translations may translate it fellowship. It's the word koinonia. That's a word you're probably familiar with. And it's odd the way he uses it here because the word koinonia is usually a good thing. It's kind of a warm feeling. It's togetherness. It's fellowship. But he says fellowship with sufferings. That's kind of a juxtaposition there that's a little bit rough that we're koinoniaing, we're fellowshipping with Jesus in his sufferings. And so he's counting it a privilege. The privilege it is to join in some of the same pain that Jesus experienced in his time here on earth. This uh, passage, whole passage, it's it, the grammar here is a little difficult. It's one long, big, most of it's one long sentence, and there's lots of that's and in order that's. But the gist of it's pretty clear, really. What he's saying is we must be ready to lose anything to gain Christ more deeply. And in that way, share in his sufferings. That's one of the ways which we, in which we do it. We share Jesus' troubles. We share Jesus' troubles when we suffer the way Jesus did, ready to lose everything. And in the broadest sense, Jesus did that when he left heaven and the glories and just came to earth. He counted a lot of things as lost there. And he, he experienced all just the normal aches and pains of being a human and living in life and uh, having disappointments and broken relationships, Jesus experienced all those in the broadest sense the very same way that we do. But it also, even more specifically, re refers to the suffering that Jesus experienced as God and as the Messiah and as the one who became the rejected one and the humiliated one and the persecuted one and eventually the killed one. It's participating in those sufferings that are uniquely for us as Christians as we're part of Jesus and can receive levels of persecution for our faith. So, how does this work? <clears throat> how does sharing Jesus' suffering bring us into a closer intimacy with God, a, a more intimate knowledge of God? Well, one way we could say it, it happens is when we suffer, hopefully, if not our first impulse, one of our first impulses would be to cry out to God, help. Help, Father. Help, Jesus. Help me. Mercy. Give me mercy in the midst of this suffering. What's more intimate than crying out to our Father, help? 
uh, just in the last week or two, Ed Welch wrote a blog and he talked about that very thing. And he said, growth can be judged in part by the number of words we speak to our Lord. And we tend to speak more words when we're at the end of ourselves. We tend to speak more words and cry out to God for help and mercy and grace even more when we've, as Paul says, suffered the loss of all things. When, there, when we're in the midst of those troubles, God help. And God loves to hear that. And that's when we're in intimate, growing and intimate relationship with him. And maybe even more so this happens as we share Christ's sufferings, we become more deeply, <clears throat> we know him more deeply. The more deeply we feel pain, whether it's physical, <clears throat> physical pain, emotional pain, or spiritual, the better we can understand that most intense pain that Jesus endured and that he endured as he loved us because he loved us. So as we experience troubles, we can think in terms of, how much more did Jesus experience for me? How much more did he experience for me out of love for me? And understanding better, he experienced that physical and emotional and spiritual and relational pain. So we can know him better. We can know him better and what he did out of love for us. Uh, some of you know, just during the month of July, our daughter Carissa and her family were here with us. And that's a really unusual thing. They live in East Asia and they're back there now on the way they're under quarantine getting back into their country at this point but we were able to have them for a whole month and we haven't had that kind of contact with them since they got married 14 years ago and with our three grandkids and uh, it was just a luxury and a gift from God but I know that in in long times of separation from them when we can't be with them and we hear these stories about our grandkids growing or doing this or and we miss them so much. There have been a number of times in that separation and pain that I'm experiencing, my mind has gone back to the pain that the father felt in being separated from his son Jesus and the son in being ripped away from his father. So we can know God's pain more and Jesus' pain even more deeply as we go through pain that has similarities. So the question we ask ourselves what obstacles are there in my life to knowing Jesus better than I need to count as loss? What obstacles to my knowing Christ does God want to extract from my life? And I use that word extract on purpose because extraction is normally a painful process, the way we use that word. And so sometimes it's painful when God takes those obstacles away and when we give them over to him. Is God removing health? Because somehow he knows that in a different health category, I will know him better and I'll lean on him more. Is God extracting money and financial security? Is God taking away close friends and relationships that I depended on? Because he knows that somehow without those relationships, I will get to know him better. I will lean on him more. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what troubles you may be experiencing other distractions or their time eaters or their innocent pleasures that separate me from knowing Jesus and his troubles even better and what he went through and things that I need to let go of and count as loss. But we fear it. We fear that loss because it by definition is painful. I, in my darker moments, I fear that God 
in his great love for me and his desire for me to be closer to him will hurt me, will hurt me badly because suffering is often the tool that he uses to accomplish an even greater thing. He knows the pain is worth the payoff of knowing him better. Samuel Rutherford was a uh, Scottish pastor uh, in the 17th century, quite a well-known one at, at that time, quite a theological power. He lived in a town called Anworth. And part of, he was part of the commission that wrote and put together the Westminster uh, uh, Confession and Catechism. So he was theologically robust. He did a lot of writing. He typically ro rose or woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning to get started in his work. But he knew pain, and he wrote of his pain. When he was still young, he lost his wife and two of his children, and he knew that grief. And then at age 36, as a pastor, he was exiled from his pastorate because he had written in defense of Calvinism against Arminianism. And so he was exiled up to the town of Aberdeen, which is way up to the northeast. And at that point, it was far away, and he couldn't be with his uh, spiritual family, and he couldn't continue his ministry. And while he was there, he developed a real ministry of writing and writing letters to a lot of people, people in his parish or his flock. And always in the corner of his letters, he wrote this little phrase, his palace, Aberdeen. And he grew to see that place of exile was being in the palace with Jesus. He spoke much of the cross of Christ and what it meant to him. And he said, I fear nothing now so much as losing Christ's cross and the showers of love that accompany it. He wanted to, to experience that and be closer to Jesus. He later in life was charged with treason because he wrote in defense of the idea that the power of the king should be limited. And the king didn't like that. So he was charged with treason and he was probably headed to execution at the time that he passed away. But he was also known to, known to say, Come all crosses, welcome, welcome, so that I may get my heart full of my Lord Jesus. And on his tombstone it just reads, Acquainted with Emmanuel's love. So he was willing to go through those pains because he saw it was God's tool for drawing him more closely to God in relationship to God. John Piper says it a little bit more succinctly. He says, there's more to be had of God in times of suffering than any other time. It's a truth we know. It's a truth we don't like. It's a, tru a truth we experience and a truth ultimately we must embrace. It's an invitation to know God more, but that invitation can be an invitation to suffer more as we count things as loss. Jesus said, in this world, you will have troubles. Troubles can expand our capacity for God and to know Jesus better in spite of our pain, in the midst of our pain, and because of our pain. So suffering is one of God's favorite tools to produce intimacy with him. So again, the, our question to think about uh, what obstacles to my knowing Christ does God want to extract from my life? And he normally does that through suffering. We share in Christ's suffering in order to know him better. And then, just want, it's a, it's a two-point two point sermon, I guess you would say. So, just want to slide to our second point. You can be turning over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. These are both very familiar passages. 
And here we'll see that we share Christ's suffering in order to comfort one another. So we kind of have a, a vertical side to it or a relationship with God, and then we have a horizontal side to it in, in how we can comfort each other. Suffering generates solidarity, unity with each other if we handle it rightly. And so let me read here, and I'll just read the first uh, few verses. And notice something. It's, it's kind of a strange passage, even as you read it in, in English, because of how often the word comfort appears. So just notice it almost comes across as awkward English. As Paul says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, there's our, our theme, sharing in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. Almost that, that word just stands out to us. So we see he's saying here in the first couple of verses that God's own mercy and comfort for us is then the source for that comfort as we share it with one another. That's kind of his, his overall point through this passage. Now he's using here, again, another word that you're probably familiar with when he's, the word for comfort is parakaleo or paraklesis. And it's the word from which we get paraklete that's used of both Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And it's the idea of someone who comes alongside to give comfort or to give encouragement. Paul uses that word family 28 times in this book. So it really stands out in 10 times just in this section. It's broader than our word comfort but it, because it can be used for encouragement or exhorting, strengthening another person, urging another person to certain actions, even admonition or reproof at times. When we lived in the Philippines, we, when we, many, many years ago, started uh, small groups in our church that we were establishing there, we were looking for a Filipino word for those groups, the, the blank groups. Uh, uh, sometimes here groups like that are called koinonia groups. And so they brought up a word that we had never heard of, and they said it was not a real common word there, but it really fit. It was kaagape. We, we called them kaagape groups. And kaagape, when we tried to understand, because we hadn't heard it before, of what, when we tried to understand or get them to explain what it meant, they said it's like you come up alongside of somebody, you put an arm around them, and you walk with them. And you are to them what they need at that moment. If they need just pure comfort and encouragement, it's that. If they need urging to action, it's, it's that. If they need reproof, it's that. That's this word, comfort. It's much broader than just comforting in pain. The idea is coming alongside of another, another to speak those words or do those things that that person needs in that situation. It implies a close relationship. Now, it's not a coincidence that in this same passage... Uh, actually all the way down through verse 11, there are 10 times he uses that word for comfort or encouragement, but also 10 times appears the words for suffering or affliction or different kinds of pain. So comfort, pain, comfort, pain. Again, it's this juxtaposition 
that we can experience in the Christian life that those who don't know Christ can't experience in the same way. So he's talking about here, we who are in pain can bring comfort, encouragement, exhortation to another who's experiencing pain because we've experienced it first from God. So he's talking about this corporate sense and how we handle suffering or how we handle troubles. So he's, he, uh, this same word, parakaleo, or comfort, is also used as of all three members of the Godhead, of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are involved in different types of comfort. So first of all, how does God comfort us in our pain, in our troubles? Well, he does that as we remember. It's, he does that as we remember that suffering is part of his greater purpose and that he is a good God. He does, he comforts us as we remember that suffering can't separate us from Christ. That God can use suffering to expose our sin. We remember that God uses suffering to change our hearts and change our affections. That God uses sufferings in order to bring us closer to Him, just as we saw her earlier. That we are still next to the heart of the one who created the universe and he's right here in the midst of this suffering that makes him feel far away. But what his point is here is not just that we remember those truths. What he's emphasizing is that we do that remembering together. We remind each other of those truths. We preach the gospel to one another daily as we share and as we talk to people who are going through suffering. Our individual suffering, my suffering, should be a comfort to the whole body in some way. And so the idea through Scripture is I am not the sole possessor of my own suffering. The body possesses my suffering too. It's a corporate possession. And so part of the purpose of my suffering, yes, is to grow me, but part of it is to bring comfort to the body as a whole. That's the way he's, God has designed us. So he's saying, Paul's saying that he went through suffering. And in Corinth, for example, he was opposed by the Jews and there was persecution as there usually was wherever Paul went in order to get the gospel of comfort to them. So he went through this pain in order that he could comfort them with the good news of Christ. And they came to know Jesus. And so they received that comfort that the gospel gives uh, of their sins being forgiven. And so that which God used to comfort Paul, his word, other people, prayer, Paul used to comfort them. And Paul speaks of that here. And especially in this section, in that corporate sense of mutual encouragement, parakaleo, for each other, comforting each other. So the same compassion, the same comfort I feel from God in my suffering, I need to make sure not only that the body knows of the suffering I'm going through, but the body knows of the comfort that God's given me at the same time. That those go hand in hand, the pain and the, and the comfort. And we share that with each other. And in your troubles, you talk about that. Whether it's your personal suffering or even troubles that you as a body are kind of experiencing together, corporately. So the idea is not just that when you get together, you simply talk about the facts of suffering, but also how's God talk, talking to you in your suffering? How's God meeting you? How is God strengthening you? And, and it could be you're still in process and, and you haven't felt the comfort of God yet. Maybe you're at the beginning edge of suffering and you're just sharing that, but you're sharing the process and maybe even times in which you failed and how you've handled it. 
But we need to be sure in our fellowship with each other, we go beyond just, yes, I'm experiencing this, to, and here's how God's meeting me. Or here's how I'm praying that God will meet me. Here's what God's doing in my life as a result. So he says in that way, in verse 5, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. And again, that word share is that word uh, from that word koinonia. We fellowship with his sufferings. It's a relational word. So part of the fellowship of the body is we fellowship with Jesus' sufferings together, corporately, in some sense. Nothing could shake them from the fact that they were God's children, but sometimes suffering can make us feel like we aren't, and we need to remind one another. God is holding on to you even when you can't feel it. No matter, no amount of suffering can threaten our identity in Christ. Those are the truths we need to model and speak to one another. Nothing eternal or nothing ultimately valuable is threatened as if suffering could take them away from us. Suffering isn't a place where God's plan slipped up. Suffering is His plan. So our comfort and hope in cross-suffering in cross-sufferings is corporate. It's shared. It's part of our fellowship with each other. So, the second part of this passage, and we're not going to read all of it, but Paul then uses himself as an example. He lays out the principle in verses 3 through 7, and then starting in verse 8, he says, okay, now I'm going to give you an example of me sharing my sufferings with you. So he says, for, I do not, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. And apparently they were familiar with it. So he's saying, okay, I'm going through this suffering. So the principle from verse 3 through 7, I'm going to apply to myself right now and share that suffering with you and tell you how God is meeting me in that suffering. And he says, we were utterly burdened beyond our strength so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And there may be, have been a, a point there when he was, well, there were points there in Asia when he was threatened with death. So he's telling them, He's being open. He's being vulnerable about the sufferings that he's going through and he's modeling that for the Corinthians. He's modeling that for us. Because sometimes it's hard to talk about our sufferings. Sometimes it's hard to be vulnerable. Because maybe we're, we're not handling our sufferings well and we don't want to talk about them or we want to just grin and bear it and just be, suffer silently. And that's not the way God designed the body. God designed the body for this mutual comfort for each other. So the result of this apparent, this suffering that, that Paul was going through in this apparent death sentence was, as he goes on to say in the second half of verse 9, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So God intended this suffering to drive me to God so that I would cling to God even more. He had to depend on God alone and, and couldn't depend on himself or his own achievements or his own strength. He was in a situation totally out of his control and he was desperately gripping onto God. And that's where God wanted him. I remember a woman that Rachel and I knew when we lived in Philadelphia quite a few years ago and she came to know Christ in middle age in her life. And we, we met her right at that point and, and, and spent some time with her. And her life up until that time was shambles her first husband had been murdered in prison for dealing drugs her second husband had been abusive when she was an adult she had her father approaching her approach her for an intimate relationship with him 
She had a son who at that point was under house arrest and he was continually on the edge of just self-destruction and it was overlapping onto her. And she, at the point of her salvation, was in a, uh, an intimate relationship with a priest. This was her life. And in the middle of that, she got saved. And she was experiencing terrible insomnia both before and after she got saved. And when she came to faith, all that stuff didn't go away. They were still true about her. She was still experiencing at least a lot of them. The pain didn't disappear, but now she had a new capacity to be able to begin as a new believer to, to deal with or to understand that kind of pain. And so I remember her saying in the middle of the night, a lot of times she couldn't sleep, and all these things would be weighing on her, and she'd open up and read Psalms. And I remember just using this phrase that, she felt like a person who was holding on to the edge of a cliff with her fingernails. That's how she was holding on to God. And I remember when she said that, her sufferings were far greater than I've ever, ever experienced, but I remember when she said that, I took a, a strange kind of comfort from that because I remember thinking, I think that's how we all should be, holding on to God like we're holding on to the cliff with the edge of our fingernails, gripping Him in the midst of our suffering. And that's what God wants us to be feeling. I'm suffering, I'm desperate now, I'm holding on to you because I have nothing else to hold on to. But then again, Paul is sharing that with us so that we can receive comfort from these stories. She shared that with us and it was a comfort to me to know, okay, even if I go through much greater suffering as she's going through, I can still hold on to God or even more so, He's still going to hold on to me. And then he says there in the last, well, verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we've set our hope that he will deliver us again, whether from that specific death sentence or through death into eternity. But then he says, you also, he comes back to this corporate comfort, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. And so he speaks of this, and literally that uh, you must help us in prayers, literally by, we will, um, you must help us by your being fellow workers of ours through prayer, coming alongside of us in our suffering or in his suffering through their prayer. So that's part of that mutual comfort, praying for each other. We share comfort by praying. Not just that God would take away the troubles, and it's okay to pray that, that God would fix the troubles, but also that he'd help us respond well to troubles. We pray that for each other, that we would know God's grace. We experienced this in a corporate way when we were living in North Africa, and it was a time for the church there of great persecution and also for expat, expat uh, Christian workers who were there. There were not a lot in that country, but during that time, the secret police of the country had done a lot of research on all these different expatriates and found out, okay, they're really doing this. They're working for a nonprofit, or they have a business, but they're also doing this on the side. And all of a sudden, it, it was like lowering the boom. They started kicking people out, one family, one person after another. The first person, man, that was kicked out was one who was a friend of ours. I had just had coffee with him a couple of days before. And they were able to hear him talk about going to meet a disciple of his because they were able to reverse engineer his phone and the phone became a microphone and they could hear what he was saying. And they picked him up as he was walking to pick up this disciple. He was the first one kicked out. 
And then week after week, another family was gone. Two other families were gone. Ultimately, about two-thirds of all the expat workers in that country were kicked out during that time. And I remember we were attending in our city a small international church fellowship. And every week we would show up wondering who's going to not be there. Who's going to be absent? What story are we going to hear? And some of the stories were scary about how they got kicked out. And what are we going to hear? But I remember also during that time, it was a time when we were leaning in to each other. And we were praying earnestly for each other and diligently. And we encouraged each other just by being there. And we encouraged each other as we shared that joint pain. We were all experiencing that pain together. So we were all comforting each other and encouraging each other together. So we should look in our lives for worthy sufferers. People that we see around us who are suffering well and and seek to emulate them. Come alongside of them and allow them to comfort us. Watch their example. Rachel's older sister has always been an example in that way to us. She lost, she, had, they had five, she and her husband had five kids, and then she lost her husband about 20 years ago, very unexpectedly and, and not that old. And she has suffered. She had to finish raising her kids on her own. And as we talk to her, she's very honest. I'm still lonely. I'm still hurting. It still is so difficult. It would be so different if he were still here. And yet she's never wavered in her commitment to God. And Rachel and I have talked a number of times about how her example, because certainly something like that, those kinds of pains will happen to us as well. Seeing her being held on to God by God and holding on to God is an encouragement for us for when we go through those kinds of trials. Look for worthy sufferers and borrow their comfort, borrow their strength, and seek to follow them. So in the community of Christ, we suffer together. But just one other thing. Sometimes it can be hard, though, to talk about your pain. Uh, maybe it's hard to be open about it and let people into that deeply, or it's hard to rehearse the pain by talking about it and going over it again. My, but our, my personal pain, as I said, is a shared possession. And that's how love works, as we share with each other. And it's painful even at times to share with each other how we're hurting in a particular situation. C.S. Lewis talked about this in The Four Loves when he said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung, possibly broken. If you want to be sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one and not even to an animal. Wrap it up carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket of your co of coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, Safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only safe place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. And so there is even a pain in sharing our pain with each other, but it's the way God designed for us to receive comfort to comfort one another. The only way to open up the door to this God plan comfort is to open the door that the troubles that we're experiencing to open up that door to other people as well, to talk about our troubles, to hear about others' troubles, to ask questions. Even God practices this. 
God practiced this. Jesus practiced this when he shamelessly shared with us all the suffering he went through here on earth and the humiliation and the weakness and the death that he experienced. And so we too can be open about our suffering. And so as you talk to one another about your about the troubles that you're experiencing, whether it's your own personal troubles or family troubles that you're experiencing, what's happened, explain also how it's impacting you, how you're handling it or how you're not handling it. Ask for prayer. Ask for encouragement. Be ready to speak the gospel to one another because that's where God wants you to focus. In the midst of those troubles, even as you deal with a lot of that, and I know there's lots of work undoubtedly to to work on a lot of that, make sure you don't miss what God's doing on the personal gospel heart level. There may be places for comfort and strengthening, even for admonition in some of that. And that way you can share together, share together in Christ's troubles. So we share in Christ's suffering so that we can build a fellowship of comfort. So our question is, how can my pain or my troubles be used to encourage others is that pain is a corporate possession so we've talked about the troubles and sharing the troubles of Christ with him and with each other vertically horizontally when the king assigned Samuel Rutherford to that exile up in Aberdeen Initially, Samuel Rutherford, like many of us, he interpreted it as a sign of God's wrath or of his punishment, of God being angry at him for something he did. This was some kind of punishment. But he also started talking about the other side of Christ. There's not only the wrath side of Christ, but the other side of Christ, or he even called it the white side of the cross. And he wrote, I took Christ's obscurity, not being able to see Jesus in the midst of this suffering, to be as good as Scripture speaking wrath. That's how he initially interpreted it. But I've seen the other side of Christ and the white side of his cross now. It was necessary for me to come to Aberdeen to learn a new mystery in Christ. His promise is better to be believed than his looks, the way he was looking, looked like an angry God at the moment. But his promise that he loved him was deeper than that. And that and that the devil can cause Christ's obscurity to speak a lie to a weak man, the lie that this was punishment, the lie that God's not being good to him, the lies that we can hear in our ear and in our mind when we go through suffering that we need to reject. Because we remember that Jesus suffered first and that all of our sufferings is just participating in the sufferings that he already went through. And that he, as the God of love, stepped in front to intercept those arrows that the God of wrath had sent out towards sin. And he received them for us. And in the gospel, he tasted suffering as he accomplished the gospel more deeply than we'll ever taste. So he's not an impassive God sitting over there just watching us from afar. He's not a God above tearing emotions and pains that he experienced and experiences himself. So when we suffer, we remember that. And we remember that together. We come into touch with a suffering God when we suffer for him. He's in that trouble with us. And so we can say when we suffer, we come into touch with God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we know both by your word and by 
experience that you love us. And yet it's hard at times to put that together with the experiences that we're going through. And it's so easy when we're in trouble to focus on the troubles and just wanting to fix those or get out of those. And uh, pain by definition is painful. We don't like it. We don't want it. And Father, I pray you'd help us push through those initial thoughts to what you have for us in that pain. And push through those thoughts to what you have for us even in the midst of the body to, to comfort one another. And I pray, Father, you'd not let each one of us become so absorbed with our own pain that we no longer have eyes to look out and see the pain of others and be the comforters that they need at that point. Father, I pray that for all of us. I pray it for the sake of Jesus' glory. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.